Well, the book Incident at Devil's Den details one of the most disturbing abduction events ever recorded. In fact, it may very well be the most disturbing. Terry Lovelace has been a lifelong experiencer. Recently, we did a three-part series on some of Terry's childhood experiences titled Aliens in the Bedroom. Terry's released a follow-up book to Incident at Devil's Den called Devil's Den The Reckoning. It includes details of his early childhood experiences, information on his friend Toby, an entity named Betty and 30 amazing accounts from other experiences and Terry's joining us now. Hi, Terry. Hi, Dean. How are you? Nice to be here. I'm feeling great and good, good to have you back with us again. And uh, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the new book, The Reckoning. So why did you do the follow-up? You know, I felt the need for the follow-up because there were so many unanswered questions uh, in Devil's Den, specifically regarding Toby and uh, what happened to my friend. That was the most common question I received. Um, and then I, uh, I made an observation in the beginning of the book, in the prologue, I believe, where I spoke about uh, an abduction or a, a missing person case from Devil's Den from August of 2017, when a 32-year-old man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma named Rodney Letterman was walking on the Butterfield Trail through Devil's Den State Park and went, uh, went missing under bizarre circumstances. And I said to the, to the readers, I said, if I, if I get an update, I will let you know, or there, there is an update to that story. In March of 2019, uh, one year after I published Devil's Den almost to the day, um, there was a news article uh, in the Arkansas Gazette regarding Rodney Letterman. And uh, he, um, there was a young couple walking down the Butterfield Trail that cuts through the park and the young lady saw on a, on a log sitting right, right, right on the trail, right next to the trail, what she thought at first was an albino turtle. Wow. And she asked her companion, she said, is that an albino turtle? And he looks, he goes over and he picks it up and looks at it close and then drops it because he realizes it's, it was the skull cap. It was the top of Rodney Letterman's skull. Uh, so said the Bartlesville Medical Examiner, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. So wow. that was all that was ever found of Rodney Letterman. So he was found. Uh, and what I found disturbing was the fact that the, the, the placement of his uh, remains there on a log where they were in plain view, open and obvious area. Um, mm -hmm. rather disturbing. Yeah. And you mentioned mysteriously disappeared because it, it was very mysterious, wasn't it? It was incredibly uh, uh, strange. He was. This was a Saturday, and there were a lot of people walking the trail. It's a paved asphalt trail, and um, he, uh, Mr. Letterman, had asthma. And about a mile into their walk, he realized that he left his inhaler in the truck, and he was starting to wheeze. And he asked his friend, "Would you mind? Would you run back to the truck and grab my inhaler for me?" Friend said, sure, no worries. So friend runs back to the truck, grabs the inhaler, runs back. When he gets back, there's no Rodney Letterman, but his cell phone is on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but my cell phone's either in my hand or in my pocket. You mm -hmm. know, I don't lay it down on the ground anywhere. And uh, he called for his friend thinking, he might, you know, maybe he stepped in the woods to relieve himself or something. And, uh, but no, no Mr. Letterman. He notifies the park rangers. They take it very seriously, and they mounted an immediate uh, search. 2,500 volunteers. They had uh, helicopters with forward-looking infrared radar looking for a heat signature. Tracked the guy down. Nothing. 
they found nothing. And the family, the, that, that search, official search lasted for one week. Afterward, the family paid for private trackers uh, and searchers to continue the hunt for Rodney Letterman till throughout October of 2017. And uh, nothing was ever found of him. That is until March of 2019 when they found the skull cap on top of the log. Sent it to the medical examiner. They treated it like a forensic, like a crime scene, and you know, bagged it and, and uh, did all the proper forensic protocol and sent it to the medical examiner who, through DNA analysis, identified it as belonging to Rodney Letterman. Mm. And it was what the trackers said that really pricked a lot of people's ears. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had called the Russellville Police Department and uh, our sheriff's department, I should say. And I talked to a deputy sheriff there who asked to remain anonymous, and I respect that, who um, was kind enough to tell me that they, they have the tracking dogs. And I knew that the, their department handles that. So um, he said that their tracking dogs are bloodhounds. Um, they brought them to the scene and they could track Rodney from the truck all the way to the point where they found his phone. They got a scent from the phone um, and then they just sat down. Hmm. And, I, and I asked the man, I said, you know, well, deputy, I don't understand uh, much about tracking dogs. Can you tell me what that means? And he says, well, what, what it means is that the scent went no further than that. Um, he either carefully traced his footsteps back to the truck. Yep. We went up. Uh, he said, that's the only two options that I can think of. Uh, and I found that to be disturbing. Wow, it, it certainly is. It's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating, um, fascinating situation. Terry, the, uh, the book, um, you mentioned that uh, a lot of people uh, have wondered what happened to your friend Toby. Can, can you kind of give us a little bit of an um, update on that? I can, I can. And to do that, I, I really should go back to um, when we were both still at Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, we had been separated. We had been ordered by the OSI, the Office of Special Investigation, security police, they have no contact with one another. And I'm convinced the reason for that is that they, you know, two people have a much more convincing story than a single witness. Mm -hmm. So they made sure that we, we stayed apart. I had, I was under strict orders not to have any contact with him, not in, not by phone, not in person, not in writing, not through third parties. Um, and they made it very clear that if I disobeyed that order, there'd be quote consequences. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, and, and they cut the guy orders for Japan at light speed. So he was going to be gone in a matter of a few weeks. Um, we both were uh, NCOs and we both lived on the base in base family housing. So they gave us a little, we lived in a little duplex on the, on the base. Um, my wife and I, we were both married uh, and Toby and his wife, uh, and they lived just a few blocks from us. And coming home from the grocery store one day, I asked my wife, I said, you know, stop by Toby's. I just want to run in and tell the guy goodbye. Um, and it was really a mixed emotion. Uh, after Devil's Den, I, I really kind of wanted nothing to do with the guy. And I don't understand that emotion. I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it today. But I, I find that that's not too uncommon, actually. Uh, when, you know, a group of friends will have a witness, a shared experience. And then all of a sudden, it's like the band breaks up. Everybody goes yeah. in a different direction. Um, so I, I felt that, uh, saying goodbye to Toby would give me some measure of closure and help me, you know, process what had happened to us. And, um, 
you know, my wife said, you know, don't, don't mess with these OSI people. They scare me. And I admitted, yeah, they scare me too. But I said, look, I'll be in there four minutes. And uh, so I went up to the door, uh, same door I'd walked through a hundred times before. And I did what I always did. I knocked three times, opened the door and said, Hey guys, it's me. Um, and then I stepped in and Toby's wife walked past me uh, and they were packing and she was carrying a, a box or something in her hand. And she glared at me and said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, I know, look, I'm not here for a confrontation. I, I understand you guys have orders to Japan and I just wanted to stop by and, and wish, uh, wish Toby well, wish you both well. Because uh, we'd been very close, you yeah. know. Uh, the four of us, you know, his wife and my wife were friends. Uh, the four of us would play cards together, socialize, barbecue, do stuff. So, um, but I felt really unsettled when I walked through the door. Uh, and Toby must have heard our exchange because he walked around the corner from the bedroom. And we met in the hall near the, near the vestibule uh, by the front door. And uh, he was a wreck. Uh, he was a person who was always very meticulous about his appearance. And when he walked out, I mean, I understood he was moving. So I kind of cut him some slack because of that. But, you know, his hair was sideways. He hadn't shaven. He was in a dirty t-shirt, blue jeans and no shoes. And I'd never seen him like that. I mean, this is the guy that always had shined his shoes, always had a haircut within rags, always had the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the starched uniform. Uh, where I was kind of a slob, you know, but right. he was, he was extremely meticulous about his appearance and that was just out of character for him, I thought. And when I saw him, I, it felt awkward. Um, it didn't feel right. And he walked up to me and uh, he was shorter by a few inches than I am. And I stuck out my hand as he stuck out his hand and we missed one another. And we finally do this back and forth and we get managed this inelegant handshake. And uh, he looks up at me and he's, his eyes are bloodshot and I can smell liquor on his breath. And that's totally out of character for my friend. I mean, he might drink a beer when we're playing cards or something, but uh, I've never seen him drink more than, more than two in my life. I'd certainly never seen the guy drunk um so yeah out of character and he looked up at me and he asked it happened didn't it terry and i said yes my brother it really happened you're not losing your mind and then he said but why us and i i broke eye contact with him and i looked at my shoes and i felt a panic attack or something i just felt and I said, man, I haven't got an expletive clue. And I, I turned and I ran out of the house and ran back to the car. Hmm. And yeah, instead of feeling settled or, or, or you know, any closure, it was ju really just more upsetting than it was anything else. Yeah. Uh, that was the last time I saw him. Now, when uh, I separated from the Air Force, he went to Japan with his wife, Tammy, and their kids. And um, we hadn't heard from them um, and then one day, a few years later, uh, my wife got a phone call from Tammy, uh, Toby's ex. And she explained that she and Toby had split up while they were in Japan, separated and then divorced shortly thereafter. She had custody of, of the two little kids. And uh, Toby was back uh, in Michigan living with his dad. 
Um, now I had his dad's phone number. So, uh, and also she said she had remarried and the guy she married was a long haul trucker and he was taking a load of, um, of freight to Detroit. And she said, we're gonna be in your neck of the woods. Would, would you like some company? And you know, my wife was like, absolutely, come by. Let's have, let's have dinner and, and catch up. You know, bring pictures of the kids and uh, you know, we, can, we can have a nice visit. And uh, uh, she was excited to do that. And uh, so they came and uh, met her new husband and the four of us had dinner. And of course I wanted to ask all everything about Toby uh, and, and did or tried to, but you know, uh, it was kind of an uncomfortable for, for her new husband, I think, because I'm focused on her ex. And, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's not a popular topic, but she was able to tell me that he had uh, been discharged from the Air Force. She wasn't sure of the circumstances, but he'd been discharged, that he'd had a problem with alcohol. Um, and that, um, curiously, you know, she said that uh, he didn't really drink during the day. Um, but he was afraid to go to sleep at night. And I was having the same problem. Uh, I, I was afraid to lie down and shut my eyes because, you know, when, when we're asleep, we're, we're not only that, we're, we're vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's when our minds are open and the monsters can come in, you know. Yeah. That's, uh, so sleep has always been hard to come by since this 1977 event. Um, so she said that Toby would, before bedtime, down, you know, several shots of vodka uh, and, then, and then go to sleep. Well, you know, if you do that, I mean, that interferes with your REM sleep, that interferes with uh, a lot of things and, uh, you know, can cause you problems. And, uh, and his life pretty much fell apart. Yeah. I called his dad in Michigan and Flint and uh, he answered the phone and I said, yeah, I'm trying to reach my old friend, Toby. And he knew who I was. I told him who I was. He knew who I was. And he says, well, Toby doesn't stay here, but he's here now and then. And I got the impression maybe he's homeless. I don't know. Uh, wow. And I, and I told him, I asked, would you please take my phone number? And if you hear from Toby, have him call me. And he promised that he would. So six, eight months later, it's Christmas season. And I'm thinking, you know, I haven't heard from Toby. And I thought I would. So I thought I'm, I'm going to call the old man back, uh, and I did, and the phone had been disconnected. Uh, well, we found out from Tammy what had happened was the family had given Toby the home to live in after the dad passed away, and um, he had he had employment problems that led to financial issues and non-payment of taxes, and he ended up losing the family home. And that was the last that she knew. So yeah, his life took a downward spiral, which is very, which is just terrible. Yeah, yeah, he didn't recover at all. Yeah. And I don't think he'd taken that trajectory, but for our event. Yeah. You know, I'll process it differently. The, the last part of the story is uh, in, in uh, the late 80s, I was working on a case that involved a uh, couple FBI agents, uh, one of whom I, I became friends with. And um, we would have, Frank and I would have a, a drink. We'd have a drink at the bar Friday nights after work uh, on occasion and just talk about the week and the like. And uh, I thought, I had the thought, you know, maybe, uh, maybe he can help me find my friend. 
So I ask him, I can't, I'm trying to find this guy who's in the military with, can you help me find him? And he said, and this is FBI humor, okay? He said, yeah, sure, as long as he's not a fugitive. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, the FBI, that's kind of their job is to catch yeah. fugitives. So yeah. it's very dry humor, but I, I, I feigned a laugh and, and he laughed at his own joke. And he said, yeah, sure, I, I can help you out. Um, he said, write down for me everything that you know about the guy. His likes, his dislikes, a picture of him if you got it. Uh, relatives, school affiliation, anything you can think of, write it all down and get it to me. So I did uh, put it in an envelope with his name on it, more confidential, dropped it off at his office. Um, and about a week and a half later, I got a call from him and he said, hey, you want to get together and have a beer Friday? I got uh, some information about your friend. And I said, my God, yes, thank you. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like that. So we met at the usual place and I, um, I got there before he did. Actually, he was late. And when he walked through the door, I could tell something was amiss. He just, uh, you know, he looked like he had bad news. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And uh, he sat down. The first thing he said was, I'm sorry, I have bad news about your buddy. And I said, well, tell me. And he says, I'm afraid your friend is dead. And I was shocked. I'm like, Dad, how, do, how, how can he be dead? He's a young man. And he said, well, Terry, you know, it was an automobile accident on 94, Highway 94, leading out of Flint toward Detroit. Um, it was a head-on collision. He was killed instantly. He said, I'm very sorry. But he said, you know, you've been around the block. You know, these things happen. And uh, we just accept it and move on. So, you know, that was a little hard to get through, but, I, you know, I thought, you know, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the way life is. Yeah. So yep. I went on and then in 2017, when I'm writing this book, I thought, you know, I think I want to find his obituary and maybe go to Michigan and um, visit his gravesite. So I found his obit and it was dated September 4th, 2007. He was alive until September 4th, 2007. My friend had lied to me. Wow. I don't know why he would lie to me. And I get, I got some flack from that from other FBI agents. And I want to make sure that, you know, anybody in law enforcement out there knows I'm not, you know, tarring everyone with the same brush. I have nothing but respect for law enforcement. I myself was a prosecutor for years. So, you know, I have respect for law enforcement. Um, and I don't know. I mean, he may have been doing his duty. There may be a file somewhere that says these guys shouldn't get together. I don't know. I don't know. It's what it's what it sounds like. It seems to stem all the way back to the um, the time you um, you were both in that hospital in separate rooms. I think so. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. Well, um, we published a three part series uh, on the Monkey Men on arlhub.com. Um, that was the period between 62 and 64. And, uh, and during that series, you spoke about an entity um, called Sue, um, who later became Betty. But I just wondered, are, are they the same entity? They are indeed the same entity. Um, mate, I was just going to say, maybe refresh um, our sure. viewers and listeners about who, who Sue was. Yeah, in the final chapter of the book, uh, of Incident at Devil's Den, the first book, 
I explained that in October 2017, while I was in the middle of writing this book, actually toward the end of writing this book, um, I woke up in my living room um, and I'm sitting in my favorite chair and I opened my eyes and I've never sleepwalked, not once in my life. And I'm confused, like, how did I get here? Um, and when I, when I, when we had our experience in 1977, when we first saw this craft and figured out that it was not natural, not man-made, mm -hmm. um, that I had started the panic and then I felt this feeling of calm wash over me. And I think I explained that in one of our interviews and I had that same feeling of calm wash over me. So here I had this stranger seated across from me and I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not, I'm okay with it. And I glanced to my left and I can see that the alarm panel for the, for the, uh, for the alarm system is, uh, is set properly. It doesn't show that there's an intruder. And my cat, I can see to my right, my cat's all chill. She's laying on the couch, just stretching and, um, doesn't seem to be bothered at all. And normally if there's a stranger in the room, she'd be checking him or her out. Mm -hmm. And this woman is um, wearing large oversized sunglasses and she has on a wig that is kind of reminiscent of what the hairstyle my sisters wore in the sixties. Right. Out right. of date. Yep. Uh, now here's black and this, it's obviously a wig uh, and it's on her head sideways kind of askew because um, the back of her head is bulbous it's too large to cover with this wig that's made for a human head uh, now you know if, if she were to walk down the streets of dallas she might not get a second look uh, but you know <laughs> to look at her closely i could see that this was not a human being yeah i mean she had a pencil thin neck she had a red scarf tied around it to kind of hide it she wore what appeared to be cotton clothing uh, a black a black blouse, long black sleeves, and four four long fingers sticking out, um, and she uh, had on black slacks and a um, a pair of like black nursing shoes with a thick heel uh, to you know make up sh for her short stature, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. and, but she's sitting there with her legs crossed in the non-threatening position, and I don't feel the least bit intimidated. I don't feel like this thing is going to hurt me. And I felt, it felt familiar. Uh, it's the only way I can describe it. And my first thought was, my God, I wish she'd take those glasses off. And she did right on cue. And she took her eyeglasses, big sunglasses off. And then I could see her face clearly. And I recognized her. And it was the entity that I knew as Sue as a child. Right. That used to interact with us. And she had not aged one day. And I, my, my next thought was, you know, because I, I realized pretty quickly we were speaking telepathically. My next thought was, what are you doing in my home? And she said, well, you know, it's nice to see you again, Terry. Mm -hmm. You know, she would rarely answer a question, um, but she was there more or less to tell me things. And um, that's when she told me that the implant would be removed from the top of my leg and that if I published the book that my government would not be happy with me. Um, 
So that was that was when I saw Betty in 2017. I had another experience with Betty in November of 20, November 21st, 2019. I was in this office here working on doing some writing around three o'clock in the morning. And uh, I'm kind of typing away. And uh, you, you can't see it from, from your vantage point, but there's a chair to my left. And I became aware that there was a presence in the room. Right. And I turned my head and it was the same woman. And, uh, you know, it was pretty much the same emotion. I was um, very relaxed. And I uh, asked her, you know, nice to see you again. Uh, why, why, are you, why are you here? And while I'm talking to her, I went to the word processor program I was using and I typed, I looked at the clock on the, on the computer and I typed 333, um, denoting that it was 3.33 a.m. in the morning. And this was a reminder that this wasn't a dream. Uh -huh. And we had a brief telepathic conversation. And she said, I'm here to tell you that the world will change on February 1st. On February 2nd, it will be a new world. Now, I, I took that immediately to be a good message. I took that immediately to be, oh boy, maybe that means disclosure. Um, and that was the real bulk of her message uh, was that she think the world would change February 1st on February 2nd, it would be a new world. And I, I went to bed. Uh, I, I mean, it was a brief encounter and she was gone. I went to bed and uh, I woke up the next morning and I was profoundly sad. And I realized that her message had a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. Did um, you, did she specify, did you automatically assume it was the following year or did she specify a certain year? Oh yes. She, this, this was November of 2020. Yep. Uh, you know, so it would be 2021. Right. She specified February of 2021. So I, um, I was in contact after this, I didn't know who to talk to. So I uh, was in contact with uh, a gentleman named Kevin Briggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, from Florida, you may have heard of Kevin. Yeah, Ke Ke Kevin's a good friend of the uh, the program. Yep. Uh, then you then you know uh, Kevin's prediction. Yeah. February first yep. and second. Yep. So we we each had the realization of those dates independently. Um, I also talked to Whitley Strieber and I asked him, "Do you have any?" I asked him this in December. Do you have any? intuition or feeling in regard to the year 2021 and he said yeah i do he said i have a nagging feeling about february so there were three of us that had that feeling that um intuition that you know the world was mm -hmm. going to change none of us kevin thought that it could be a positive thing um and his message was that the U, that UFOs would manifest over the UN, United Nations building in New York City. Yep. And if a protocol were in place, um, they, they would greet the UN. So um, he wow. asked if I would, if I would contact, because uh, I actually knew someone at the 
United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs. Um, but the person I knew had left, but I, I still got the director's name and, and sent them a letter and said, uh, because there is no protocol for that. Um, you know, the Office of Outer Space Affairs has, a, you know, kind of a esoteric name to it, but it really involves routine satellite trajectory and, and those mm -hmm. kind of matters more than it does. Yeah. He says routine stuff. Um, so I sent a letter and I said, well, you know, it's important that you have a protocol in place uh, for these visitors when they show up on February uh, 1st and 2nd. Uh, and I sent that in uh, December. And, uh, and, you know, the question is, did they show up? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember interviewing Kevin uh, for the uh, summit last year, and um, he um, we we spent a bit of time on that prediction, and um, um, and I just found it uh, pretty fascinating. But so, um, did, did did you feel like there has been a change? You know, absolutely. Yep. I'll tell you what happened is that, um, and it actually kind of worked out to my benefit. But I, in January, beginning about January 1st, I felt panic. Um, and I've never been, are, are you familiar with the term prepper? Is that mm -hmm. the term used? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've never been uh, a prepper, um, but I, I felt the need to replace my eight foot tall stockade fence that needed to be replaced and install some motion detectors and uh, I live in Texas, so firearms are ubiquitous here, and I'm mm -hmm. had plenty of ammunition. And I went out and I bought uh, a camp stove and a bunch of food. And uh, my wife is like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> so I was embarrassed to tell her. And I said, "Look, you know, I, I just, uh, I just want to be prepared in case something bad happens." And uh, she says, did you have a, did you have a, a premonition? Do you have some? And I said, yeah, kind of. And she respects my premonitions. If yeah. I about yeah. 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 I, I also had the compulsion to sell some stock. Um, and this is, this is, I give Betty credit for this because uh, the idea didn't come from me because I'm not a financial person, but I had, stock and like General Motors and Coca-Cola and mm -hmm. normal things that people fill their portfolio with. Uh, uh, and I sold all of it. And I bought um, some gold and silver and I bought um, stock in Moderna. Right. Labs, Abbott Labs. Yep. Uh, I bought Gilead. I bought six pharmaceuticals, six pharma Viking, six pharmaceutical stocks. I'd never had any experience with, um, but all of you, all of, all of them, you know, were very successful mm -hmm. as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, wow. So the, there was a couple of questions I found fascinating that uh, Betty asked you, and one of them in particular, and it was, uh, what does a colony, colony of ants do when it reaches a point beyond self-sufficiency? Did, did you know what she meant by that? I did. I did immediately. That's an analogy. In other words, um, the first thing that crossed my mind was Elon Musk. Um, and he recently announced that he planned to have 100,000 people on Mars by 2030. 
Uh, and that's a pretty ambitious, that's nine years now. That's a pretty yeah. ambitious, uh, but he seems to be a, um, he seems to be a pretty shrewd man. Um, so I don't know that to me, I don't know if I use the analogy in my book or not, but the analogy that came to my mind was the Titanic that sunk about April 15th, 1912, uh, in the middle of the Atlantic on its way to, on its maiden voyage. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were the first class passengers, the elite that got room in a lifeboat and those in third class and steerage, um, you know, went to the bottom for the most part. And I, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, does this mean that Elon um, Musk and a hundred thousand of important and the privileged and the, uh, you know, the um, so-called important people mm -hmm. are going are going to have a, a, a ticket, and then, uh, you know, they're going to take the lifeboat, and then there's going to be nothing left for the average person. Uh, but I think the the hurry to get off Earth speaks of, uh, and I, hate yeah. I don't mean to spread fear, but I mean, the obvious is it, it speaks to a coming calamity. Yeah, well, um, we know what happened to the Titanic. It eventually sunk, but um, let's hope this this craft or crafts that are heading to Mars don't run into an asteroid or... They may be the last hope for humanity's uh, yeah. well, existence. So the, the revelations that Betty made, uh, can you talk about these? Was was the prediction one of those? Well, the prediction was the, no, the prediction was the analogy that, uh, you know, the, the queen leaving with, with part of the hive and going to establish her own hive is analogous to Elon Musk and, uh, you know, the privileged and elite leaving to go to Mars. And, mm -hmm. Settle uh, or a new for in a new place for a good reason. Um, the other analogy that she gave me was that uh, not analogy, but the other information that she gave me was that confirmation that there is another space program that we're not privy to. That the space program through NASA that we all know is the public face of the mm -hmm. space program, and another one exists, and other people have said that too. Um, you know, I, there was a man, William Mills Tompkins, um, who was a whistleblower who, uh, uh he was 93 years of age. He's been interviewed, uh, and he, he's a guy kind of in his nineties, kind of like, um, um, Paul Hellyer from Canada. Right. Uh, and you know, the same message that. December 8th, there was a man from... Uh, Israel, the retired Israeli general? Haima Shed, Because yes. I was going to ask you whether these revelations that you got from Betty were connected with, with what he said. I think very much so. Uh, you know, the implication... The, I mean, she was pretty plain about this, that we have a separate space program, that we're in contact with E.T., that we have people on the far side of the moon, which syncs up with my experience from 1987 mm -hmm. um, and, and the experience of other people as well. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it was confirmation for me of a couple of things, the secret space program, the fact that, um, that the, the United States is working somehow in concert with, with ET 
Um, and the Galactic Federation is not one species, but a collection of species, which accounts for so many people having different events, uh, different, different, different types of entities. But you know, yeah. over the years, it seems to boil down to a pretty, pretty solid set of, you know, they're insectoid, they're reptilian, they're grays, they're, they fall into one of the half dozen categories. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, well uh, Kevin Briggs has certainly given us a great insight to uh, that Galactic Federation um, through the Council of Eight, who um, he has had plenty of experience with. I, I envy his uh, ability to have that kind of uh, dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have what limited contact I've had with um, this woman that I call Betty. Uh, as I believe I said in the book, you know, when I saw her, I felt an immediate affection for her in, in, in a maternal way, not a romantic way, but in a maternal yep. way, uh, because I did recognize her as, um, you know, being there when I was a kid, when they would take me um, to this white circular room with a gray padded floor. Yep. And there were, there were toys, there were objects there for us to play with, but they weren't like trucks or army men or anything. They were geometric forms of different color. And uh, we would arrange them in certain patterns according to her directions. And when we got it right, she would you know, heap praise on us. Mm -hmm. uh, if we got it wrong, she'd encourage us. And um, one of the things that uh, I remembered was um, every time I talk, I've, I've had two interactions with Betty in my adult life that I remember, um, the one in 2017 and the one in 2019. And she told me in, in, in the 2019 event uh, that, that we had met when, uh, in, in 1987, when I had the two hours of missing time, that she was with me when I had that experience on the other side of the moon. So, um, yeah, when I, when I was a kid, the, the, we went to this room to play and um, always the same group of kids, not from the neighborhood, not from school. And I was very young. I mean, four or five years of age. And I recall a couple of events um, from being there. And I, I, I recall that we had these colored blocks, colored cubes. Um, well, I had a cube, some people had a sphere, some people had a pyramid, and it weighed nothing. You could hold it in your hand and it weighed nothing. Now, if I let go of it, it would fall to the floor. But to pick it up, it felt like it had zero mass. Yeah. And we would all sit cross-legged on the floor in a semicircle, and we would place our object in front of us, and we were supposed to move it with our minds. And other kids are doing this, and I'm having no luck whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and one day I'm concentrating on this blue cube and it just flew across the room. And Betty came over and patted me on the back and said, that's wonderful. You did really, really well. Hmm. And I put that in my book and I have had probably a dozen people yep. tell me that they've had the same experience, reached out to me via email and said, oh yeah, I was there. We did the same thing. Uh, and they weren't in St. Louis, Missouri. They were in, you know, Toronto and Florida and California. Yep. So. Um, wow. So um, do you expect to hear from, from Betty again? I mean, it's, um, 
it was 17 and then 19. And I guess if you go um, by uh, numerical order, 2021, I guess she's due to appear again. I hope so. You know, I, I hope so. I, you know, the, the last time I felt I walked away with a gift and that um, I wasn't aware of it, but, but I knew that I needed to prepare for something. Now, you know, we're prepared, nothing, nothing happened. I expected, I fully expected the, the world to fall apart at the end of November. Uh, and it did, at least in the States, to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, but not on a massive scale, fortunately. Yeah. yeah. But you know, this is, this is not the end. Um, the famous quote from, Shake, from uh, Churchill, you know, it's not the, even the beginning of the end or the end of the beginning. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. We're really yeah. on in this process. We got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, um, you know, make comments about great to see the back of 2020. And I, and my, I just have this, this feeling that, um, you know, by the end of 2021, you, you might wish um, you were able to go back to 2020. Um, but anyway, that's, that's just the feeling I have, but it's, it's just a, it's just a strange time we're in. Um, the book, um, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, I think what makes it extra special, Terry, are the, uh, the 30 extra narratives that you've included from other experiences. And, and I, I was telling you off air, I mean, that's one of the things I love about this role is speaking with experiences and just letting them talk. And, 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 and telling me, you know, what they went through and how it affected them and, you know, the good or the bad that they got out of it. But um, those 30 narratives are, you know, uh, you know, just a wonderful addition. And, and one of them that caught my eye was The Strangers in the Pasture. Uh, is, is that one you can recall? Yes, that's, that's the uh, gentleman from South Africa uh, with the, uh, and he, we, we, had, we had an interesting conversation. I never talked, with the other folks I spoke by phone, but being in South Africa, we never had a telephone conversation, but we had a pretty extensive uh, back and forth dialogue. Uh, and, uh, you know, his English was kind of a mix of English and Afrikaans. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, and uh, there were some differences in phraseology that I thought were unique. Uh, he didn't use the word telepathic. He used thought transference. Um, there were a couple other things, but let me let me tell you the story. Tell the tell, tell the story real quick. And uh, I got an email from this gentleman, uh, who's about my age now. And um, some years ago, uh, twenty fourteen or something. I don't remember the exact year. Uh, maybe in 28, 2008. I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact year. But he. Uh, had a family business outside Johannesburg um, that his dad started and it was a mechanical repair business. They repaired automobiles, farm equipment because it was an agricultural community and uh, anything mechanical mm -hmm. broke down, he said he could fix. And uh, he had a call from his friend one day, uh, a call from a friend named Duncan who owned the farm. And he said that uh, you know, Duncan was uh, in a state because uh, he was uh, on his tractor and he broke a uh, belt on the tractor. And uh, he said, yeah, I was familiar with the machine, so I knew the part that he needed. So he said that he, you know, hopped in the Land Rover and drove over there. 
and drove to the far back of the field where uh, Duncan said he was waiting. And he got there and he said that Duncan was uh, upset. And uh, he, uh, he said, he, he, told him, he told him, don't raise your voice. He said, come here, I gotta show you something. And what it was, was he was at the very far end of his field and there was a row of trees, a hedgerow that separated Duncan's property from his neighbor's property. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of that hedgerow was a big open field. So Duncan says, come here, I gotta show you something. And Duncan is visibly upset. And Duncan pulls, I, I guess they, they both were wearing sidearms, which I don't know, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was the custom at the time. Mm -hmm. There's been some instability there. So it's not too surprising. Duncan pulls out his firearm and, uh, you know, he did the same thinking, you know, he was thinking that there were people over there that were a threat. And he gets through the brush and he saw that there were four stainless steel looking bullet shaped objects uh, about as big as his Land Rover, you know, big as a full size van. They were all about three feet off the ground and they were all spinning at a high speed yep. uh, clockwise. And uh, he, uh, he looked at Duncan and he said, well, what are these and how did you find these? And his friend explained, well, I was, work I was taking the belt off the tractor and he said, I heard a, a, a whirling noise and I looked over my head and he said they were in a diamond shaped formation and they flew right over my tractor, right over me and, and sat down in the field. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I saw how he explained that they'd been there all of about 10 minutes, about the time that it took for him to get to Duncan. Um, so Duncan says that they're, you know, those are spaceships. They got to be spaceships. And he's like, no, spaceships don't exist. He says, those, you know, that's from Russia or from China. There's no such thing as a spaceship. Hmm. So he says, I'm going to go over there and talk to them real friendly like. And, uh, you know, his friend says, with a pistol, well, I'll, I'll, I'll cover you. And he says, no, no, put your pistol away. He, you know, he says, you're going to shoot me in the arse. What he said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, which I thought comical. And he put, it, he put his pistol away, and uh, so did Duncan. And he walked over to the nearest ship. And um, I don't know how to pronounce it. The word he used for the hailing was Hayata, H-E-I-T-A, Hayata. Um, I don't okay. speak Afrikaans, so I don't know. No, no, neither do I. Uh, so he hailed this thing and uh, basically said hello, and it slowed it slowed its rotation and stopped. And it stopped and it lowered itself a bit closer to the ground. And a, uh, I apologize for the siren. Um, there was an arch-shaped doorway that opened up like a camera lens. It mm -hmm. just opened up. And he said that standing in the ship was a man in a silver suit who, quote, appeared to be of the mongoloid race, that he had no hair visible. Yep. Didn't recall seeing any ears or hair, facial hair. Uh, but other than that, looked to be a humanoid entity. Wow. And uh, through his words, thought transference, this thing told him, yeah, we're, we're, 
we apologize for the trespass. We won't be here long. Um, and, you know, he had the thought, well, what, what are you guys doing here? You know, what, what, and I, I like the response they gave. We're here, we're here neither to help nor to, nor to harm. Hmm. Um, and he said, we're going to affect some repairs and we'll be gone soon. And of course, he pipes up and says, I'm very good with mechanical things, you know, could I help you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, uh, the entity very kindly said, no, but if you'd like to see the inside of our ship, I'd be happy to show it to you. Wow. And he's going to do that. And then the entity stops and says, but your friend, he says, your friend is very concerned. He said, I'm afraid that if you come in here, um, it's not going to go well for him. And Duncan was, you know, up in years and had heart issues. Mm -hmm. So uh, he said, yeah, maybe I, maybe I should go back to my friend. Yeah. And he turned around and the door closed and the thing levitated another couple feet off the ground again and, and started rotating. And he went over and talked to Duncan. And of course, Duncan is, what did he say? What did he say? He wanted to know what the, mm. what the conversation was because he couldn't hear anything. It was all, it was all telepathic. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he explained to Duncan everything that he'd heard. And, um, you know, in so many of these stories, uh, and, and very similar to my own, when yep. two people have a shared experience like this, then they drift apart. Right. Uh, and this is the exception to the rule. He and Duncan uh, were like were like old war mates or something. They uh, every chance they could get together in private, you know, they had quote they'd have a whiskey and uh, talk about that mm -hmm. day. And, yep. Um, so I found that to be an amazing story. Yeah, it was. It was, and it's it's one of thirty that um, that you've put in the book and. Um, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I, I've got tremendous respect for people who come forward and tell their story. It takes a lot of courage, but after Incident of Devil's Den, you had, uh, you had hundreds of people write to you and, 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 and talk about their experiences with you. And this is where these narratives have come from. Yes, I had, as a matter of fact, since March 10th of 2018, I've had over 1400 people email me. And from those 1,400, there was a core group of about 400 that were just, uh, and not that, not that I'm judgmental of anyone's story, I respect everyone's story, but there were about 400 that were just articulate, that were well stated, uh, you know, in a chronological order that made sense. Mm -hmm. And um, from that 400, I distilled it down to 50. And then from that 50, I pared it down to 30. So those are 30 of, of probably the best of the best. Um, but I still have enough to probably put together a, a third book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd, 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 love, to, I'd love to read them. Uh, and I think printing the stories too uh, from other experiences, it gives those that haven't come forward yet, um, maybe it gives them a sense of peace that what happened to them wasn't isolated. You know what? Yeah, I, I was relieved to see the commonalities between my experience and what other people experienced and know that you know, hey, I'm not all that unique. You know, what happened to me happens to a lot of people. Uh, probably way more people than, than we'll ever know because some people don't have the luxury of being able to remember it or recall it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Terry, uh, we're just about out of time. Um, the uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, it, it's available now. It's been out for probably a couple of months. 
at the time of recording this interview. And uh, how, how's it going? Has the response been positive? It's been very positive. It was number one in new releases uh, in across the board in UFO genre. Uh, and I think we're ranked number five this morning. So uh, yeah, yeah. Sales have been good and, and the ratings have been good. So I'm yeah. very pleased with that. And, and, and um, I, I hope this doesn't affect sales or not, but I, I really do believe that um, to get the best out of the second book, you at least need to be familiar with the uh, the incident of Devil's Den, the actual first um, the first book you put out. I, I agree with that. Um, I, I won't argue that one bit. Yeah, and it really is a sequel. It was meant to be a follow up. Uh, it does stand on its own in regard to those thirty stories, but uh, yep. you know the beginning part, uh, especially you know we, we didn't even mention there was a there was a chapter that I wrote for inclusion about a cousin. Uh, you know, my, mm -hmm. my plan to steal my father's 32 revolver and kill the um, entities, the monkey men that were, yep. troubling me. you know, those were stories I wanted to include in the first book. And my editor said, no, for sake of brevity, you, you know, you yeah. talked about your childhood, get to the meat of the story. So I left them out, but uh, I feel like they belong there. So, yep. Yep, and again, the um, the the story about the uh, the monkey men can be found on arlhub.com. Uh, we've we've done a three part series on that about uh, Terry's experience uh, through uh, sixty two to sixty four, and the new book Devil's Den: The Reckoning available uh, at any good bookstore, as they used to say. But uh, I guess Amazon is the place to go. Amazon is the bookstore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Terry, thanks once again for your time. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise. Thank you for the time. I always appreciate being with you. Terry Lovelace joining us today.